episode is sponsored by Dash of Pride, a specialty store for LGBTQ plus weddings, special events, and everyday life. They carry all of your decor and accessory needs, not just rainbows. Check them out at their website at www.dashofpride.com or follow them on Instagram at Dash of Pride. This is Southern Queries. I'm India Bastien. And I'm Aubrey Calvin. Together we explore being a part of the LGBTQ community in the South. A quick note on terminology. On this show, we let guests identify in the best way they're comfortable with. Some of the terms or topics might be different, new, or uncomfortable to you. That discomfort is part of what we're exploring together. We encourage you to listen with an open heart and continue these discussions with your larger community. We encourage any meaningful and politeful feedback. Thanks, and welcome to Southern Queries. Hey, India. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How was your day, Kay? It was good. Exhausting, and I have a ton of work to do now, but it was so needed, and Arkansas is beautiful. Shout out to everybody in Arkansas. It's a gorgeous state. Yeah, I can't wait to go. Woo-woo! I know. Um, So who are we talking about today? So today, we have invited Katie Hicken to come onto the show Um, I met Katie actually through, um, a modeling thing that I did with my fiance, Allison. Um, a photographer was looking for same sex couples actually in Tyler, uh, Texas in a new venue called Scarborough Haven. And, um, Katie and Raquel were the other same sex couple. And as us lesbians do, we saw each other and I was like, yeah, yeah, well, we should hang out. So we all started hanging out during the photo shoot. Um, And I got to know her uh, through that. Um, She's also the person who introduced me to Molly from our previous show um, and uh, Lady Queer Dallas. And I'm bummed that I don't live closer to Dallas to go play dodgeball um, and softball. I think they have two different teams. Um, But I'm very excited to talk to Katie because they have some interesting stuff that they're working on today. Well, let's, that sounds amazing. Let's talk to Katie. Woo, let's do it. Cool. Today's guest, Katie, is a Dallas native working as a political op- operative and finishing up a master's in public administration and public policy. When she is not working or studying, she coaches. Uh, LQC Dallas softball and dodgeball teams and writes for the Lone Star Parody Project. She spends the rest of her time listening to music, hiking, traveling, hanging out with her fiance, Raquel, and contributing to conversations about how to create more just public policy for women, queer individuals, and black and brown Americans. Katie, welcome to the show. Hi, Katie, thanks for being on. (laughs) I'm so glad to be here. Woo! Well, um, how are you doing, friend? I'm great. Thank you for asking. How are y'all? Good. We're, we're both doing great, right? I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'll I think we're all doing great, all things considered. We're doing our best. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, my mind is still turned off from vacation, but I'll get it together. So um, just to start off, and just a question we ask everybody, 
Can you tell us how you identify and why is that identity important to you? Sure. So um, I identify as a cis female lesbian. Um, I, as my bio said, um, I am, I work in politics right now. I'm really big in public policy and um, things of that nature. So being a lesbian is um, not only a sexual, sexual orientation identity for me, it's a very, very important political identity for me. Um, it's where I get a lot of my um, empowerment um, in my love of women, um, both in a way that um, is romantic and just generally speaking, I just love women. I wanna see women succeed politically, economically, um, you know, every way that, that I can support women, I wanna do that. And so um, being a lesbian for me is a really like important identity in the sense that like my entire life is female centric and I love that I have the ability to live that life. Very cool. That is beautiful. Um, Katie, I know this about you, but what are, what pronouns do you use? My pronouns are she, her. Awesome. Awesome, okay. Uh, and so can you tell us a little bit about your coming out story and how does it incorporate the South? Sure. So I um, grew up around here in Dallas, um, like you know, Frisco area. Um, I was Mormon all growing up. Um, so that was really fun. And I went to college my first year actually at BYU-Idaho. Um, so that's a Mormon college in Rexburg. It's this little tiny town in Southeast Idaho. Um, where there's more students there than residents of the town. So <laughs> it was very interesting. Um, and I spent a year there and then just really didn't jive with it. I, I wasn't huge in Mormon culture um, because I had grown up here where there weren't like a ton of Mormons. I mean, my high school had, you know, around 2000 students and there were maybe like a couple dozen of us who were Mormon. So I was used to like a lot of diversity of religion, ethnicity, race, all of it. So going there where it was very homogenous was very weird for me. Um, so I came back, ironically, to East Texas where <laughs> it is also very homogenous. Um, so I, was, I transferred to UT Tyler to play golf um, and found myself realizing towards the end of that second year that I liked women and it was very, um, let's say life altering for me because I had never really considered the idea before then that I could be even bisexual. Like it was just never, never a consideration in my, in my head. Um, in the Mormon church, they don't really talk about like LGBT people at all, just in general. Um, it's like generally understood that it's like not okay. And so it just doesn't really get talked about a lot. I didn't have any like queer influences in my life at all growing up pretty much. Um, so I just never really understood why I was like trying to date all these guys and it was never working and I was like, man, there must be something wrong with me because this, I'm going on all these dates and doing everything that the church is telling me I need to do and it's not working. So, um, we were at a country dance bar. Actually, it was like a thing that we did every week. It was so fun. We would go on Thursday nights to this place called Cowboys and, um, there was a friend there who, um, I had met through my on-campus job and I saw her there. I knew that she was bisexual and she hit on me and I was like, I remember having this thought in my head where I was like, oh, I'm into that. And then I was like, wait a second, <laughs> this is a 
maybe I'm not straight. Because <laughs> it was really the first time that I had ever like had friends who weren't straight and any of that. So um, that's kind of how the thought kind of like started trickling in my head. And um, for that summer after I or after, not after I graduated, but that summer after that year, um, I was pretty much like trying to come to terms with it was watching a lot of TV shows that had lesbians in it, like <laughs> all the things that you do, you know, you watch the L word, you watch Supergirl, you watch anything that you can find that has lesbians. Supergirl, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I did a lot of that. And then um, by the end of that summer, I was out to everyone. Um, it was interesting to say the least being in Tyler specifically because um, by the time I graduated, from UT Tyler, I was pretty much like out of the church completely. And <clears throat> it was actually surprisingly harder to deal with and to navigate being in East Texas with a lot of like mainstream evangelical Christians and being a lesbian um, than it was to be in like Mormon communities and be lesbian. Because like I said, Mormons don't really talk about it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's because Mormons just don't acknowledge their existence um they do it's just not talked about a lot and the mormon church is very good at just being like love everyone even if that's not what we do behind closed doors kind of thing you know um so because a lot of the church's policies are very like homophobic and transphobic but on the surface and on the outside they're like we love you we care for you mormons don't really believe in like a traditional conceptualization of hell and so they're not going to be like you're going to hell like that's just not their style Mm -hmm. So it was a lot harder with like mainstream evangelical Christians because they would literally say like, you're living in sin, you're going to hell type of stuff. Um, so that was a lot harder because I hadn't really experienced that before. Like all the people from my um, childhood and, you know, adolescence who were Mormon and didn't agree with it just kind of like slowly faded away from my life. Mm -hmm. um whereas like people in east texas that i cared about who had a problem with it would like literally tell me and be like we can't like i'm not gonna be your friend anymore or blah blah, blah. i don't support this whatever so so what about your family um for the most part my family's great my um my dad is my dad loves raquel like is basically planning our whole wedding <laughs> he's like doing all of the work pretty much um, so he's great. Um, my siblings are all wonderful. None of them are really like super religious anymore. And then, um, distant family, like for the most part, half of them are good and half of them are like probably not, not good, but also don't really say anything about it. So <laughs> to my face, everything is great and they're all really nice and wonderful. Um, whether or not that's true for everyone when they talk about me when I'm not there, I don't know. Um, but I like to focus on the good. So my immediate family is wonderful. My dad is great. And that's really all you can ask for. Yeah. 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 That's so, so great. Wow. What a story. I had no idea. I didn't know this about you. Yeah, it's kind of a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, you mentioned uh, the idea of things being constitutional. Uh, so you study politics. You are a grad student and getting a degree, a master's in public policy, right? Yeah, public admin and my concentration is in public policy. Specifically, okay. a lot of the public policy stuff that I've studied has been criminal justice policy. Oh, good stuff. Uh, and so one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is because you're in the part of the Lone Star Parity Project. 
Mm -hmm. uh, what is that and how'd you get involved with it? Sure, so I um, heard about Lone Star Perry. It's kind of this like funny, like a little bit incestuous relationship <laughs> and like with like young women in politics um, in like North and East Texas. Um, because the, the girl who started the organization, I know her from several different things. And then the girl who co-founded the organization with her is now like, I work for her organization, the one that's based in DC. So it's like so funny, like there's so many people that I know that are now involved in it too. And I know them from like something else. And I'm like, how did you get involved in this? And so it's like very much this like web of just everyone knowing everyone from all these different things. Um, but I, so Brooke Lopez and Adriana Mayberry are the two founders. Um, I met Brooke when I was in student government at UT Tyler, and she was trying to, um, she, and actually my best friend from high school, which I didn't know until later on, but again, this incestual thing, um, incestuous thing. Like the, the lesbian world. <laughs> literally, literally like that. And so I found out later she was like working with my best friend from high school, and they were trying to, they were working for Period International, which is an organization that, um, tries to get free menstrual hygiene products on college campuses across the state or across the country, really. Um, my friend Amy was working for Period Dallas and then um, Brooke was working with Period International. So she was like a regional director, I think, and was working on the state of Texas, trying to get different period chapters established at, um, at schools across the state. So she gave a presentation um, to our student government and I was like, yes, like I wanna do this. I'm gonna work with you on this. We're gonna make it happen. Um, so I met her through that. We also had connections together through um, Ignite National, which is another organization that tries to promote women in politics and um, encourages and coaches young women on how to run for politics um, and just get involved in public service in general. Um, and then Brooke and Adriana started this organization called Lone Star Parity Project, which is a publication and research um, organization. Adriana does the research side, Brooke does the uh, the features side, like the writing. And um, Adriana works a lot with um, getting like archives, um, things like that to gather in data and information on like women who have run in the state of Texas for public office. Mm -hmm. And then on the research, or oh, sorry, on the, um, on the writing side, Brooke and all the contributors, contributors work on getting uh, women who are either running for public office or are in public office to come do interviews with us so that we can write about them and share their stories. So it's this huge, like very sprawling organization that basically just works to promote um, from a information and dissemination standpoint to promote women in politics in the, in the state of Texas. And well, what you said was, no, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Well, what you said is interesting about how you get involved, how you got involved, because so much of politics is networking, yes. knowing people, meeting people, being willing to talk to people. And, you know, I teach government and there's only so much you can learn in a classroom compared to the actual connections that you build. And that's such an important aspect of it. And I think that's a lot of what you're highlighting is you have to talk to people and you have to be willing to put yourself out there and introduce yourself to people and build up those, uh, build up that network. And it sounds like you're really doing that. Yeah. And I will say too, like specifically with women and, and even more specifically with young women in politics, 
there are very there are much there are fewer organizations or avenues for them to get involved in and so i think that's why you see so many people involved in all the same organizations like there are like probably a handful of organizations that i know a ton of people that are involved in because it's just like we want to we want to figure out how to like how to get involved in this and what to do and so we're going to join all these organizations because this is what we've got <laughs> kind of thing you know how i mean how is the response in texas um have you seen a good interaction i mean how's it going um as far as like receiving the stories of women in politics or women in politics in general all of the above (laughs) (laughs) Um, so there's there's it's getting a lot better it's getting a lot better um there are different theories about why um women don't get elected and what it all comes down to really is that women it takes more to get women to run so there's like this statistic i might be botching it i don't remember it specifically but on average it takes so the 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 um what's the word basically the way that they tell it is that you can ask a man to run for office one time and he'll say yes and you have to ask a woman seven times for her to get for, like to get her to say yes wow. and so it, it it comes down to these like i think like socially um conditioned beliefs that women are always having to work twice as hard to get half as much and because of that women feel like they could work twice as hard on a campaign and still not win. And so why even run if they feel like they're not going to win or if they feel like they can't fundraise as much or whatever. Because that's another aspect of it too. Like women are are systemically underfunded in political campaigns. Um, And there are, um, I can't back that up with any like empirical research, but (laughs) there are definitely like allegories that you'll hear from women who literally like run fundraising packs and can't get their female candidates to like to get enough money raised simply because of like internalized misogyny and things like that um but it is getting a lot better specifically uh on the democratic ticket you see a lot a lot more women that are running and winning and it's getting so much better i i I would even say this year even on the republican side there are a lot more women running than we've seen historically um so it's really interesting to see how that's how those are changing things because women are also starting to um shift electorally like right now we see that um suburban white women are probably going to decide the election because they are turning away from how they have historically voted and it's people are realizing that women are really really important in order for politics to work and there's a strategic advantage for um, electing women and for appealing to women and messaging to women. So it's getting better. It's definitely not where we need it to be, but um, but I think especially this election and then in the ones to come, we're gonna see a lot more women in office. I mean, I feel like we are already seeing a lot more women just on the media um, running for office or being there voicing a lot more, um, more more so than in the past. Um, but that's just my own perception. At one point I thought I'm either getting older and more interested in politics. 
And so now I notice women or there really is a shift happening. And maybe there's like a combination of the both, but I was really excited to see that you're working with the Lone Star Parody Project because I thought it was really meaningful that you guys are also um, trying to give better conversations, not only to women, but also queer individuals and black and brown Americans. Yeah. Um, do you think that people need to do more or are you, do you think people are having really good conversations as of late? Or how do you think that's going? Um, specifically with a political lens? Yeah. Um, I think that it takes a lot more than just conversations in politics. Um, and I think that there's value in the conversations, absolutely. And there's value in the representation um, that we are trying to show in Lone Star Parity Project. Um, but it also doesn't really mean anything if they don't win their elections. And so that's kind of, that's the other part is like we, we I can sit here and, and interview black women all day, but if those black women don't win their elections, then we're not really changing anything, you know? Um, I, I, that story that I write might inspire other black girls to run for office one day, but if they don't win their elections, then we're, we still are, ex we're still exactly where we were before. And so that's why you see a really big push now for like people to work the polls or to volunteer for campaigns, um, to donate to campaigns, because like I said, women are systemically underfunded in politics. And if you can just like literally all it takes is setting up like a $10 recurring donation every month. And that can make a huge difference for a female candidate who is really struggling to get funding from, from like even institutions, PACs, things like that, but also just from like grassroots donate um, donors who are struggling to decide whether or not they're gonna donate to this person or this person. Um, so there's a lot of like supplemental work that has to be done. Um, and that's kind of, I mean, you see that everywhere. There's organizations for everything. <laughs> and that's why, because it's all equally as important. And do you ever see yourself running for office one day? Um, I, it's always like a running joke that like, I'm going to be in office one day. I'm going to be like, I, like, I'll always make the joke like, oh, if I do this, I can't run for Congress or like, oh, that's going to come out in my congressional campaign one day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I don't know. I think that, um, I, I fall victim to this, to that, I, that idea that like, I'm never going to be qualified enough. I have to, I have to take these, these steps to get there in order for me to be qualified to even run. Um, and so it's a constant battle of like trying to figure out, trying to get rid of the imposter syndrome that we are like, you know, trained to have that we're literally born with, um, as women. And so trying to get rid of that first before I <laughs> try to run for anything. Um, and it also, like, you also have issues of like classism that plays into it too. Like it's, people will always say like, you can't run for Congress unless you've been on like city council or something before. Mm -hmm. um, but city council is not accessible for a lot of people. Or here's a perfect example, the state legislature. People will say like, you can't run for um, Congress until you've been in the state legislature. Well, the state legislature only meets every two years and they, the legislative session is like a few months every two years. So you have to be able to, like you have to have a job that allows you to literally take off like a few months every two years just to go down to Austin to be in the legislature and make $7,200. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And one thing I always tell my students is that 
you know, that's not a lot of money. And we always complain about the money in politics. But if you want people to run, you have to make it so that they can afford to live while also being in politics. And I just want to put this plug out there because I know you're a grad student. Graduate students tend to have more flexible schedules. Maybe you can take some online classes. Maybe you should run here in the future. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. Unfortunately, Gra I'm not talking <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, but I do have, but do you think it's harder for LGBTQ candidates in the South, in addition to maybe the gender angle where we know that, we do know, the research shows it is very difficult to run for office if you're a woman. But it's also very difficult to run for office if you're uh, not heterosexual. Mm -hmm. I think there's additional challenges there if you're in the South. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I have a friend right now who's running for State House in District 6, which is where it's, it's Tyler and the surrounding area. Um, and I always like, I always joked with, so when I initially told her to run, I was like, Julie, I don't live in, in Tyler anymore, so I can't run, so you have to be the one to do it. Um, but I like the more that I think about it, the more I'm like, I there's no way that I, a lesbian woman, could win a state house election in East Texas. Like there is just no way. And so that's kind of like a benefit that she has running. I mean, she's still like a young woman. She just turned 25 like yesterday. So she's like super young, very new to the political scene, trying to like prove herself and all that. And I would be dealing with all those same challenges, but being a lesbian on top of it, who's also not Christian in deep red East Texas. So it's very much so about like um, knowing the electorate and knowing like the district and if you truly represent it. Um, but I think like, it's not like that everywhere, I will say. I think that there are definitely districts around here in Dallas where like, let's say for example, I could run and I could probably win um, because people wouldn't care as much that I'm a lesbian. But there's also like, there's also um, people in the LGBT community who are less privileged than I am because I am white and I am straight passing. And so that's not to say that if a trans woman was trying to run in that same district around here where I feel like I could win, that doesn't necessarily mean that she would be able to win because there are still problems that you face with even the most progressive people having issues with transgender people or anything like that because of their biases and their prejudice. So it's definitely an additional barrier. Um, and I don't know how long that's going to take to get rid of, but we are, we're fighting the good fight. We're trying to get there. <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. So switching gears a little bit, how did you and Raquel meet? Oh, good question. We met on Tinder, like a couple of like good lesbians. Because <laughs> um, especially in Tyler, it's really hard to to find other queer people just in general. Um, so that was like the main reason. It's like, I don't know who's gay and who's not. So I just have to get on Tinder so I can figure out who likes girls. <laughs> so for context, how far away is Tyler from Dallas um, for our listeners who don't know the distance? Sure, so it's, um, it's just under two hours east of here. Okay, Whew, that's far. <laughs> you think it's far? <laughs> Tyler, um, 
a rural area? Um, there are, so the city of Tyler itself is, um, I wouldn't consider rural, but outside, everything outside of Tyler, yes. There are no like suburbs of Tyler. Um, gotcha. So yeah, it's definitely like more rural around Tyler. Um, because like Raquel is from ARP, which is like 20 minutes outside of Tyler, and it is like population 2000, like it, it's tiny. Um, so yeah, much more rural than here. Um, uh, but yeah, so in Tyler, you don't, there's not like in East Texas in general, there's not like people walking around out and proud all the time. So you can't really like figure out who's gay and who's not unless you're, unless you have some help. So tinder was that help for me <laughs> and um and it's funny we are both going to ut tyler she says all the time that she had like seen me around campus before she just didn't know i was gay and she thought that i worked for the university because i was always wearing blazers when i was walking around campus <laughs> i was like i mean i technically did i was in student government and i got paid for that so i guess i kind of did but no i wasn't like 30 if that's what you're asking <laughs> But so in addition to not being a very active community of LGBTQ people, um, I, I feel like I have this conversation often because I'm also perceived as straight passing. Mm -hmm. um, there wasn't LGBTQ people that you could spot, like people wearing rainbows or um, I don't even know what gay looks like because I don't even think that's a real um, thing. But I know that there's people tend to be like, oh, a woman with short hair might be gay. Um, yeah. I feel like it's not even applicable in Texas or most of the South. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But it was just Tyler not have like an LGBTQ, um, what do they call it, like student body or something? Um, so we tried <laughs> to create one. <laughs> um, my, my very best friend uh, in the whole world, his name's Jacob, um, he's somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum. Um, and he and I tried to create like a GSA there, but it just wasn't like, there just weren't enough of us. Like everyone who, so like it took, it took a while, but everyone who was queer, LGBTQ, anything like that, um, they all, you all knew each other at UT Tyler. And so you didn't really need like. An official university sanctioned. Yeah. Yeah. Organization, because, yeah. Because the people who like we didn't know were closeted probably anyway. And so they weren't gonna come to an event even if we had something for them to come to, you know. So we like tried to set it up and tried to like, you know, really be like out and open about it. And we just didn't really have really good turnout. But just UT Tyler in general is just really bad about that. <laughs> <laughs> so then you guys had a, a date and then how 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 did we get to you guys being Beyonce. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, we met on Tinder, uh, we were texting for a bit, um, and then one day I was texting her and I was like, Jacob and I were walking to the university center to go get food, and I was like, where are you right now? And she was like, I'm in the UC doing homework, and I was like, oh, perfect, I'm walking there right now, I'll come see you. <laughs> so that's how we met for the first time, actually, I just kind of like dropped in on her, and we sat there for like three hours and talked. She missed her French class, it was like a whole thing. And, <laughs> and then that night we went to the library and studied together. And then I think like the next day or a couple of days later, we went on our like first official date and the rest is history. Here we are. <laughs> we got engaged like 
14 months after that and we um, moved to Texas. So we got, so we started dating January of 2018, got engaged March of 2019, moved to Dallas May of 2019. We were supposed to get married May 16th of this year and then COVID happened. So we postponed to uh, November. So now that's where we're at. So and now November. Yep, November 7th. Okay. Oh. Wait Yay. a minute. Wait, wait. Isn't that right close to the election? Right after the election. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's either going to be very, very celebratory <laughs> or very like we need to do something to make ourselves happy again. <laughs> okay. I was going to say there are very, I don't hear of many November elections for people involved in politics, but. I know. I really, I did not think about it. And well, I will say at the time, I wasn't working for this organization that I'm working for now. Um, it was, we, when we postponed, um, it was like, I want to say late April, we decided to postpone. And I was still like working as a paralegal. Um, and then like literally a month and a half later, I started working for this organization. So it was really, really bad. I should have thought about that on like in, in hindsight, I should have been like, oh, that's probably not a good idea. But I also, at the time, my summer work with them was just gonna be an internship. And so I didn't even know if I was gonna stay on with them after the summer. Mm. So in my defense, no, <laughs> no, no, it's... Didn't know. <laughs> and, and so you're eloping, right? Yes, it's, uh, we're going to Zion National Park. Um, and it'll just be us and probably like 30 of our closest friends and family. And we're so excited. <laughs> Woo! Woo! So Aubrey, did you know that I collect pins? I have this one jean jacket that I've owned since I was 15. Of course, now it's covered in LGBTQ pins. Well, I just looked well, I just finished looking at the pen selection from our sponsor, Dash of Pride. They are a specialty store for all things LGBTQ+, including weddings, special events, and just everyday life. They carry all of our decor and accessory needs. Yes, I can't wait to get a pen with my preferred pronouns on it. Right now, you can go to dashofpride.com and use the code DASH10 to receive 10% off your entire order. And who proposed to who? So, I, oh, that's a whole story. How much time do we have? <laughs> um, so we, were, we went to New York City for spring break. And um, we, okay, so I'll tell the story from my perspective first. So I had, <laughs> I had this whole elaborate plan to propose to her in this historic bookstore in New York City. Um, we were going to be flying up on Saturday. Our flight left at like noon and I was going to propose Saturday night. Um, her friend who we were visiting there who lives in New York City, her name is Alex. She was helping me um, plan it. She was like, here's what we'll do. Like I'll set everything up. Um, her other best friend, Rachel, and her fiance at the time were flying up to surprise her from Houston. So they were gonna land in, in New York City at the same time as us. I was like scrambling to try and figure out how we like weren't gonna run into them in, in the airport um, because their, their plane literally was landing at the exact same time. So they were flying in to surprise us. Alex was gonna like 
get them and take them to the bookstore so that they could like hide or whatever. And then we were gonna come to the bookstore. I was gonna propose and then Rachel and Cole were gonna come surprise her. And then we were gonna go to Washington Square Park and there was gonna be a photographer there and we were gonna take pictures and it was gonna be wonderful and great. Turns out Alex was telling Raquel that the photographer was for her and was like helping Raquel plan this whole elaborate thing to propose to me at the Met. So <laughs> like this whole thing, we had these, we both had these plans to propose on this Saturday night. We get to the airport on Saturday and our flight gets delayed nine hours. <gasps> oh no. We miss Rachel and Cole because the next morning they had to drive to Canada. The photographer could not reschedule for the next day. So we end up getting into New York City at like 3 a.m. We go oh. to the Airbnb. <laughs> and then the next day we go, I was like, I was texting Alex and I was like, I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I am just going to, let's just, let's just take our plan that we had for last night and move it to tomorrow just without Rachel and the photographer and it'll still be great, whatever. Um, so we, so that's our plan is like, we're just gonna change everything to the next day. Um, and then we get to the bookstore. Raquel kept saying like, she wanted to go to Met first. And I was like, no, let's just go to this bookstore really quick because it won't take us very long. <laughs> and, we get there and then I started my freaking periods and I had to leave again and go to the Walgreens to get a tampon. It was, oh, it was a whole thing. And so then I proposed to her first and she was like, only, she, I, I asked her if she'd marry me and she was like, only if you marry me back. And she pulled out my ring out of her pocket. It was, uh, it was a whole thing. And this happened at the bookstore? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a story. I love that. Ride. Books are wonderful. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Were you surprised? Did you know? I um I was surprised. I but not also at the same time. It was like it like I was like shocked at first, but then I was like, that makes sense actually. <laughs> so it was funny like finding out that that Alex was like playing both of us basically and was like, I got this photographer for you. And she was telling that to both of us. Kudos <laughs> to the friend. Yeah, she did a great job. Both of you. Did a really awesome. It ended up working out too because Rachel and Cole, um, their like rental car couldn't get through the snow or something. So they had to come back from Canada. So they ended up surprising us on their way back and we got to hang out with them a little bit. So it all worked out. It was just a shit show. I'm allowed to say that on here. I don't know. <laughs> I love that. That is the makings of a great rom-com. I love that. Yeah. I love it so much with all the hijinks and everything. So you had mentioned earlier that you went to UT for golf. Yes. All right. And so you were a collegiate golfer. And so how do sports contribute to your sense of building queer community? Oh, good question. Um, I think that sports, specifically for women in sports, um, it can be a haven for queer women. Um, because I mean, like there's like stereotypes that like all softball players are lesbians or whatever. Um, but I think that there's like some intrinsic truth to the fact that women, specifically like, queer women are just drawn to like spaces where they can be with other women. Um, and, and not even like in a romantic way, just in a way where they can just 
be with other women and experience. Uh, I mean, it goes into this whole thing about how I think that like the lesbian experience isn't just like romantically connecting with other women. It's, it's just like connecting with other women in any sense, like platonically, romantically, whatever. Um, and so sports specifically for me at least has been a way for me to like just kind of connect to other women um, in, a, in a space where the only other men are like the coaches maybe, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think though that that's like, it, that to a sense is like a little bit of my privilege because for example, like for gay men, it's not as easy in sports um, because for them, you like they encounter a lot more homophobia than women do in sports. Um, so I actually, when I was playing golf, um, I followed this Twitter account called Outsports. I think it's technically like a magazine, some kind of like publication. Um, and they share the stories of like queer um, collegiate athletes. Uh, so I was drawing a lot of inspiration and empowerment from them. I remember there was one in particular um, where there was a girl who was from Plano, but she was playing tennis at some school in California. And she was gay and she was very like out and proud about it, was in California, obviously, at a public university. Like, so she had no, no worries there. Um, she could be out and proud and, and not worry about like getting kicked off the team or whatever. Um, but she was supposed to play a match against uh, East Texas Baptist, which is in Marshall, I think, like really close to you, Tyler. And um, she refused to play against them because they have a Title IX waiver, which basically says that they can discriminate against students, faculty, and staff based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, Legal? Yeah, the, Depart the Department of Education actually like gives out these waivers for, for schools so that they can do that. Especially for religious private schools, yes. Yeah, they're allowed that's to. mainly who gets them. What? Yeah. You guys are blowing my mind. Get yeah, like public schools don't get the waiver because you're accepting public funds, but for religious okay. private schools, it's very easy for them to get this waiver. It's very um, common. A lot, yes. a lot of, I think like all of the private religious institutions in Texas have one. I can't believe they have a, a waiver for that. It, yeah, it's, it's actually, yeah, so she was like, she was protesting that, and that's actually how I learned about it, so I was like, that's really, really cool, because like, you know, college athletes, we, we compete for our playing time, and our playing time is what determines like national rankings, it's what determines like scholarship money for some people, it's like, it's really important, and so for her to like, be so proud, and so like, just ready to give all of that up for something that she believed in, and then also using it to educate people like me who didn't know about that. I was like, that's really, really cool that she did that. So I started like being more, really a lot more conscious about that. And like, cause I mean, I didn't choose UT Tyler because it was a public school and I knew that I could be a lesbian. When I went to UT Tyler, I didn't even know that I was a lesbian. Mm -hmm. So I just ended up getting lucky, but there were girls that I played with in my conference who like I knew for a fact were gay, but they like, because they would tell me like while we were playing, because in golf you get paired up with like people from other schools. Mm -hmm. So it's like three or four of you and it's just y'all for like six hours. <laughs> so you get to know each other. You have to talk about something, right? <laughs> yes. So they were like, there were girls that would tell me like that they would come out to me and be like, but I can't be out to like my teammates or my coach or anything because I can get kicked off the team. I can get kicked out of school, like all of that. And so, yeah. 
that and that is something that is specific not i mean not specific to the south but a lot more prominent in the south because a lot of a lot of southern private christian universities will get those so on that same note i'd love to hear from you what does being queer in the south mean to you or lesbian for that matter um it's a good question because i think that before i went to ut tyler i really didn't feel like i was from the south it's this kind of weird thing where like i grew up in like plano and frisco where like you might see a few people in cowboy hats but like that's it it's very diverse like my high school had a large population of like southeast asian um and um, indian and pakistani people so like lots of diversity you, it's not like just a bunch of white people walking around in cowboy hats and um so i i really didn't identify with that like southern identity until i went to ut tyler and i was in it like all the time going country dancing every week and like you know buying boots like i knew what i was looking at <laughs> and so <laughs> So it's it's really interesting because like now that I feel a lot more connected to that southern identity and now that I know that I'm queer it's this like almost like rebellion that like I love being from the south and I love being queer and I can be both if I want to you know like that that southern part of me is always going to be there now because I learned how to like identify it and accept it and really love it but i did the same exact thing for my queerness and so it's like one of these things where it's like i'm not going to pick one of them because i don't have to and you guys can all just get used to it <laughs> love Absolutely. it i love that i love that um and why do you think it's important for us to talk about it i think that um conversation uh dialogue representation that is everything I think that for me specifically, I'll talk, I'll speak only for myself, but I think that this is a very like common sentiment. It's kind of what I said earlier about how like when I was figuring out that I was gay, I was trying to find every like ounce of lesbianism that I could find so that I could like figure out what it was and what it meant and like how to be gay. I mean, that's like, you can unpack all that if you want, but like <laughs> there was just, there's just a lot that like, that we, that we just yearn for community whenever we are coming out and trying to come to terms with the fact that this is who we are. Um, and it feels a lot safer to be in a community of other queer people. Mm. And so um, if we don't talk about it, sorry, excuse me. You're fine. If we don't talk about it, then that community can never be built. And so I think that it's really, really, really imperative because like for some people that's like the difference between life and death like finding that community and finding that dialogue and challenging their like heteronormative ideals that they had before um, is all really important to creating and building this community where we can all feel safe and supported. I love that. That's <laughs> a great answer. <laughs> all right, uh, so thanks for being on the show, Katie. You can keep up with her at Hicken Little on Instagram and Katie Hicken on Twitter. Uh, also, if you want to learn more about the Lone Star Parody Project, you can check them out at uh, Lone Star Parody on Instagram and LoneStarParody.org. And of course, uh, Katie is also involved in the Lady Queer Collective, and you can keep up with uh, their work at LQC Dallas on Instagram. Thank you Woo! guys so much for
having me. Yay! Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Dash of Pride, a specialty store to meet all of your needs. Check out dashofpride.com and don't forget to rate and subscribe to our podcast. You can find more information about this episode and the show at our website, southernqueries.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Southern Queries. Queries is with two E's. Until next time, thanks for listening. Some credits. Production. Your hosts, India and Aubrey. Audio mixing by Allison Holly. Story research, Aubrey Calvin. Editing, India Bastian. This is Southern Queries.